Judson Bottom by Dodge Zelko Chapter 5 Harvey the F***ing Rabbit If you've never been to an auction house, picture a strip club, only packed with cattle instead of dancing girls. If you've never been to a strip club, I recommend cruising chubbies on highways 12 and 16 outside the Dells. Farmers crowd the bleacher stands. An industrial fan tosses the barn-smelling air around. A catwalk has been arranged behind a small pen. Somebody walks the cow in through one of two doors, shows it off, turns it around, models its physique. Meanwhile, an auctioneer prattles on till he's red in the face and coaxes the excitable farmers into dropping small fortunes. The more experienced ones, with sagging bellies and packs of smokes tucked in their t-shirt pockets, sit there impassively, biding their time, keeping a critical eye out for that perfect steer, bull, heifer, or cow. Around back is a large complex where the cattle are stored, similar to what you would find at a state fair. And then there is the office beside the loading bay, where all business is conducted. Trossen and I pull up that afternoon in an unmarked cruiser. We park behind a blue propane tank shaped like a giant aspirin. He's a patrol officer, maybe a day over 30, with one baby girl and a wife who looks like Nicole Kidman. Locally bred, he's got a sinewy farm boy build with a wide neck, square jaw, and hair that turns platinum in the summer sunshine. This has the effect of emboldening his tan so he resembles a blonde Indian. In the office, we shake hands with Bruce Jenkins. The AC unit in the window freezes the sweat we've accumulated just from walking across the straw-scattered lot. It's a loud, boxy contraption that juts halfway into the room. Bruce is true to the persona he projects over the phone. His salt-and-pepper pompadour sprouts sideburns that aspire to be mutton chops one day. His voice is the kind coveted by salesmen and politicians worldwide, warm and amorous, practical and bombastic, friendly and despotic. A voice that could convince you to invest in the comeback of tape cassettes. Pleased to meet you, fellas. You want a coffee, lemonade, ice water? When we decline, he offers us chairs positioned on either side of the AC unit. I sit there admiring the false-dropped ceiling, the wood-grain wallpaper. Bruce pivots his computer monitor to show us live feed of all the cameras in the facility and blows up the frame pointed at the loading bay, the one which yesterday captured a man and woman dropping off two Herefords and a black Angus. My guess is these two will be pretty punctual, he says. It doesn't take a detective to send something shifty about their attitudes. I didn't talk to the lady nun, but the fella, he had what I guess you'd call a cocky attitude about him. Real skinny, know what I mean? Not a lot of red meat on his bones. Such is the life of Bruce Jenkins, always thinking in terms of beef potential. It ain't my job to speculate, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were both feeding a habit with this little caper of theirs. It's possible, I allow. There's a lot of that going around. Bruce nods tragically. Lost my own niece last year. No one had any idea. They just thought she was overworking herself. My condolences, I say, waiting to hear how Trossen will respond. But he only echoes my sentiments. I guess he doesn't feel like mentioning Fletch, his kid cousin who did detailing at the Amherst garage. 
Crossan was a wreck for weeks after the funeral. A tractor passes the window lugging a trailer of manure. The smell permeates the room. We sit and make small talk for a while, twiddling our thumbs, before Bruce asks whether we mind if he makes a few calls. Of course not. You're a busy man. I enjoy listening to him wheel and deal over the phone. Within five minutes of meeting the man, you feel like you should invite him over to your next family function. His call with an associate by the name of Toder, however, is cut short when the profile of a silver F-150 glides onto the camera feed. You know what, Toad? I gotta bail right quick, but let's work out a tea time for next week. Black Wolf Run, you got it. Take care. He hangs up. With his hand still on the receiver, he asks us, How you want to play this? I lean in towards the monitor. The girl's not with him. He came alone. Is that bad? Doesn't have to be. We can make him think he'll get a nice plea bargain if he implicates her in the theft. Let's just hope he's not a gentleman. I keep a forty-five in my bottom drawer, Bruce notifies, in case things go bad. Things won't go bad. We watch the suspect dismount and slam the door. He wears a snapback promoting monster energy drink, sunglasses, an XL Spurs jersey, and baggy shorts. His lips are puckered like he might be whistling on his way up to the office. As a detective, I can go plain clothes if I like, but I choose to be in uniform most days. If he's guilty, just the sight of us might betray something on his face. And in this respect, the young man doesn't disappoint. When he swings open the door, it's obvious every nerve in his body is signaling for him to flee. But common sense prevails. Afternoon, Lloyd. Bruce greets him without rising from his chair, probably wanting to be close to that bottom drawer. Right on schedule. Yeah, well, I got a full day ahead, so... Trossen and I stand. I'm Detective Mickey Fontenelle. This is Officer Dean Trossen. Okay? Lloyd jams his hands deep in his pockets. They look empty, but I ask him to remove them anyway. We were all screened the same chilling montage back in Academy of Police allotting too much trust or goodwill to an individual and paying the price. A gun can materialize from thin air, and by the time you recognize your oversight, it's a moot point. All the footage was pulled from body cams and dash cams, lending a first-person culpability. It was enough to give anyone second thoughts. Exactly the point. We just want to ask you a few questions about your cows, I tell him. Mr. Jenkins here says they went for a good sum. Congratulations. What's this about? Lloyd looks to Bruce. Is this normal? Bruce replies, no, it ain't. Trossen invites Lloyd to take his seat. I don't have a lot of time, he repeats. Neither do we, Lloyd. We're police officers. You think there aren't other things we could be doing? Have a seat. We'll make this quick. He and Trossen essentially switch spots, brushing past each other in the cramped space. Trossen now guards the door while the suspect slouches in a metal folding chair. I pull my own away from the wall and angle it toward Lloyd, the AC blowing in my face. So, what's the problem? He wants to know. Like I said, we're... 
interested in your cows. They aren't my cows. Whose cows are they, Lloyd? A friend of mine. He doesn't like driving. He's old. He's old, I say. So you're doing him a solid by dropping off these cows and picking up the bid for him. He nods, fingers interlaced, shoulders hunched, still wearing his sunglasses. I'll get that friend's name from you in due time. First, I want to know about that girl you rode along with yesterday. Does she know this friend of yours, too? He nods again, even as his mouth says, No, she's got nothing to do with this. Nothing to do with what, Lloyd? Nothing to do with the damn cows. Why are you cursing, Lloyd? He shrugs and mutters under his breath. Didn't know this was a chapel. I grin at Trosson over by the door. Didn't know this was a chapel. You're funny, Lloyd. You remind me of my son. Got a lip on you. He offers no defense. What's your daddy do, Lloyd? Huh? He's dead. And your girlfriend? Where is she at? Homesick? She's homesick. No, she's at home, not feeling well. Uh Uh-huh. And what's your friend's name, uh, the old-timer who doesn't like driving? Look. Lloyd straightens up, glaring at Trossen and me behind those ridiculous mirrored lenses. Aren't you two outside your jurisdiction anyway? I don't see what Judson PD's doing way the hell out here in Chilton. Shouldn't you all be like sheriffs or something? I cock my head. Aren't you getting a little sidetracked, Lloyd? No, I know the system. I know what the rules are. You know the system. Meaning you've been through the system. He doesn't answer. Done a little time, Lloyd? There's no shame in it. What's that got to do with anything? I never stole no cows. When did I accuse you of stealing a cow? Or even a goat, or a chicken for that matter. You implied it. What else would you be doing here? You tell me. Why would the Judson Bottom Police want to talk to you, Lloyd? A question designed to be annoying. Beats me. Let's think of some reasons. Together. Let's brainstorm why that might be. I pluck a ball of lint from my knee. Flick it away. Would it be because two Herefords and a Black Angus were stolen from a family farm yesterday? Would it be because I want to catch the daddyless dick smoker who decided he could leech off a pair of senior citizens and get away with it? Who's cursing now? He scoffs. I look at him long and hard, as though trying to guess his weight. Take off those sunglasses, Lloyd. You look like you've got something to hide. Maybe I do. Mouthy fucker. Then you better hope whatever it is isn't inside that truck, because Trossen here is about to go and search it. Where's your warrant? He demands on cue. Probable cause, I say. You're the prime suspect in a larceny case. Thought you knew all the rules, Lloyd. That's bullshit. You want me to slap the cuffs on you right now? He leans forward and enunciates each impudent syllable in my face. You ain't got nothing. All right, Lloyd. I rise from my chair in no great hurry. Stand up, face the wall, and spread your legs. You know the drill, I suspect. You're arresting me? No, I'm just going to mark your height on the wall. He clutches his chair with white knuckles and doesn't budge. I watch his Adam's apple do a series of ugly lurches. 
This is a joke, you know that. Talk about some ass-backward fucking priorities. Here your town's full of towel heads running around and strapped with C4 and dirty bombs, and you're here wasting time over a few cows. I blink at him, uncomprehending. What? You thought it was your little secret? He laughs. They're talking about that shit in Fond du Lac. His expression switches from smug to livid as I wrench him off the seat by his collar and throw his underbeefed body against the wall. Trossen runs over. He helps anchor the rustler in place, suffering every obscenity launched in his face while I cinch the cuffs tight. I can feel Bruce immensely enjoying all of this behind me. Next, I pat the kid down, feeling for the bulge of his keys, and hand them over to Trossen. Search the truck, I say, in the same tone of voice people usually reserve for, fuck you. Once Trossen leaves, I manhandle Lloyd back into a sitting position and stand before him at a smart distance, in case he lunges. So, you're from Fond du Lac, then? He clams up, glaring off to the side. Back to the matter at hand. This friend of yours, I say. The one who supposedly owns the cows. I'm curious to hear his name. John Doe? Kaiser Soze? Harvey the fucking rabbit? What's his name, Lloyd? I propel my words at his face on gobs of spit. I met the people whose cows you stole. It was their whole livelihood. I didn't steal nothing. There's more decency in that old woman's bunion than there is in a bottom feeder like you. Anyone who'd throw the elderly out in the street to make a couple grand is liable to do anything in my book. Lloyd cracks a smile. Listen, detective, I understand you need a big bust right now, something to distract from that major fuck-up of letting a homegrown terrorist slip away unnoticed. But I don't think the papers are going to be too impressed by me. I mean, I'm not exactly Bin Laden. I've got to say, Lloyd, I agree with you there. What you are, I poke him hard in the chest, is a shit-kicker. A shit-kicker who mugs old ladies. And that fourth cow you showed up with on surveillance, I bet deep down she's pretty disgusted by you. The fuck you just say? Lloyd pounces, but I'm ready for it and shove him down so hard his head knocks against the wall. I know it must hurt because his eyes start watering, but he refuses to acknowledge the pain. He sees my hand settle on my taser and thinks better of trying again. The door opens, Trossen enters, in his left hand, he wields a big, mean revolver and a baggie full of pills. Lloyd's face blanches. God damn, Lloyd, I whistle. That's one gnarly gun. What is that, a thirty-eight? Hand me those Skittles there, Trossin. I roll the baggie in my hand. They are little red pills that have OP engraved on one side and sixty on the other. Strong stuff, albeit the gel kind you can't inject or snort. The other stuff, marked OC, is getting harder to find, but they enjoyed a long enough rain turning Judson Bottomers into the Walking Dead. Once Lloyd is loaded in the back of the cruiser, I double back and shake Bruce Jenkins's hand, thanking him for his break in the investigation. It's all part of my job, he insists. A man of practiced humility, which is more admirable than when it comes naturally. Goes with the territory. He points to Lloyd's profile in the window and says, 
Be careful out there, detectives. Maybe I'm watching the news too much, wife says I am. But it seems the world's gone nuttier than it used to be. Believe me, I've noticed. He catches me by the elbow as I'm about to turn and go. Trosson is waiting, leaned against the big blue propane tank. I just feel like I should say, detective. It's none of my business, and I only hear what passes through the rumor mill. But nobody I know blames the police for not catching that Muslim kid. I mean, unless you'd been watching him 24-7, how could you have known? A low-panicked moo warbles across the plain, along with dirt odors and manure, and the sweet smell of grass. The sun warms every follicle on my head down to the root. When Lloyd chose to prevaricate back there by bringing up Ismail, I worried about damage control. But I guess it was nothing Bruce hadn't heard already. He and how many others? Like I said, secrets are notoriously short-lived in Judson Bottom. Tired of squinting, I put on my sunglasses and give Jenkins a pat on the shoulder. Take it easy, Bruce. Then Trossen and I board the cruiser and we're off. So the cat's out of the bag. Now that I've been made aware of this, I decide to check in on the Mubaraks, dumping Trossen with all the bureaucracy of booking our gun-toting, pill-popping rustler. When I arrive at Buckley Street, my worst gut feelings are actualized. The curbside is teeming with press vehicles. Milwaukee, Green Bay, and Madison news vans with telescopic masts harnessing microwave dishes. Most of the neighbors are conveniently out front doing yard work. I park in the closest space available in front of a hydrant and get my kicks barking at reporters on my way up to the house. Stay off the lawn. Don't crowd the sidewalks. This confines them to a two-foot-wide median between the gutter and the pavement. It's comical to watch them jumble together, trying not to trip on each other's cables or bump their expensive cameras. I know that as soon as I'm gone, they'll flood the sidewalks again, but someone needed to come along and heckle these vultures. This is Flipsy's beat. I wonder why the hell he isn't over here harassing them. Climbing the steps to the front stoop, I can't help but notice there are five bright orange letters spray-painted across the grassy hill. T-E-R-R-O. Nadim flings the door open when I knock, looking fed up, wild, ready for confrontation. His expression softens, crumbles, really. Mickey! The murmur of the press escalates behind me. Please, come in. He nearly catches my heel, swinging the door closed. I feel a palpable difference from three days ago. It's darker, for one, owing to all the curtains being drawn. Javaria sits curled up on the couch watching a BBC broadcast report from Fallujah, a city recently retaken from ISIS control by the Iraqi army. She doesn't acknowledge me until Nadim says in a reproving tone, Javaria, Mickey's here. It's all right, I tell her as she blinks at me with something between apology and incomprehension in her bloodshot eyes. Don't mind me. I only wanted to... Wanted to what? Wanted to see if I could offer my services in any way. A little formal, but honest enough. Thank you, she says. The rest is implied. Thank you for not disavowing us. She turns back to her television. Part of being a cop is seeing people at their most pitiful. It's not as big a deal when you don't know them because there is no model of comparison. You're not holding them up to dignified versions of themselves. Come into the kitchen. 
Nadine places a hand on my back. I have the kettle on. He gives me a lost look regarding Javaria. What about my shoes? He nods with a mute indifference. When my shoes are off, he ushers me into the next room, asking what sort of tea I drink. Anything caffeinated is fine. I'm not picky. He pulls two mugs from the cupboard, watching through the small window above the sink. They've been coming and going in shifts since eight o'clock this morning. Someone got a lead overnight, I guess. Honestly, Nadim, I haven't said a word. And the only other man on the force who's supposed to know is Chief Wojcik. I'm not accusing you, Mickey. For all I know, Khadija let something slip to one of her friends. He turns and braces himself against the counter, gripping the edge. We've been telling everyone who asks that he's on a mission trip with his mosque, but the truth had to come out eventually. Better sooner rather than later, I suppose. I can't help but think how accurate Ismael himself would regard that cover story. The sound of televised gunfire coming from the living room is drowned out by a crescendo of whistling steam. Nadim switches off the burner and pours hot water from the kettle into our mugs. Please, sit. I pull up a chair at the square table, and he sets the black tea before me. I notice a stack of unopened mail. She never used to watch the news, he whispers in a frustrated tone. She never used to care for all that darkness. Now she can't take her eyes off it. It's as if she expects them to mention him by name. He adds bitterly, she'll finally get her wish. We sit there in a grim, respectful silence, weighing the situation, letting the steam waft from our mugs. I clear my throat and mention the incomplete vandalism defacing his lawn. If you'd like to file a report, it won't take long. He waves his hand dismissively, as though I've offered to take out the trash. I caught them right in the middle of it. That's why it's unfinished. I couldn't sleep. I went out and took a long walk. I swear I covered half the town and barely realized it. I was in a fugue state. When I came back, I noticed someone prowling on my lawn. I chased after him, but he'd already heard me coming. Anyway, what would I have done if I'd caught him? Can you give me a description? Not really. He was wearing a hood. I'm more disturbed by the phone calls. He takes an investigative sip of tea. Still too hot. You've been receiving threats? I ask sharply. He responds by sliding me the stack of mail. These came this morning. I opened two or three before I more or less got the point. I'll take these in for evidence. We'll do some handwriting comparisons on the nastier ones. They do get nasty, some of them, he nods. I'll talk, I'm sure. Trolling, Khadija calls it. Nonetheless, I'm afraid to let her and Javaria leave the house alone. I don't think I've really feared anything since we left Afghanistan. Things were bad over there? I feel dumb and embarrassed not to know more about this man who has been a casual acquaintance of mine for the past twelve years. We left during the Soviet occupation, our families together. He gestures at the living room to indicate Javaria. My father and I, we fought in a rebel outfit you might have heard of, called Mujahideen. They were being backed by the Americans, who of course sided with anyone who hated the Soviets at that time. My father managed to make connections through a Pakistani colonel who knew an American diplomat, and so on and so forth. One way or another, we were granted asylum. It is who you know, after all. Of course. I sip my tea, burning my tongue, and wait for him to go on. I guess the reason I'm telling you all this is to convince you, Mickey, that I harbor no ill will toward America. Quite the contrary. I owe America a great deal. I just... 
I wonder why I didn't impress that more on Ismail. I've been racking my brain, thinking of things I might have said over the years, things that could have been misinterpreted, misunderstood. Nadim? I cut him off. Forgive me, but if you think you had anything to do with radicalizing your son, then you're way off the mark. I try my best to sound like an expert. Like I have a doctorate in this arena, and I'm citing dozens of such cases. I iterate most of what I said to console Khadija in the rail yard, explaining how these recruiters are textbook cyber predators. They single someone out and earn their trust. They plant ideas, bad ideas, and convince the person they're being victimized. I remember what she told me about Ismail being bullied in the past. Maybe there were instances when he was victimized, and the recruiters were able to latch onto that, blow it out of proportion, convince Ismail he had a moral vendetta of some kind. Nadim scratches his beard with slow, hypnotic movements, perhaps pondering my words, perhaps hearing none of them. His grandfather keeps cropping up in my head. My father. He was a true Sunni Republican. He believed in the Sharia courts. He died when Ismail was thirteen. We always spoke of that man as a hero in this house. Of course, he could be outdated in his thinking, the way some Americans are today, the way any elder generation is by definition. He never had a kind word to say about Shiites or Israelis, for example. But he'd seen enough violence to know what it could solve. Even Mojadin, the resistance effort we fought for, once it wrested control from the Soviets, it eventually morphed into the Taliban. I don't have to tell you how that unfolded, producing minds like bin Laden's. He locked eyes with me, direct and cathartic. Please believe this saddened my father deeply, despite his flaws. Please believe it saddens me to this day. What else can I say? I tell Nadim I believe him. But in reality, he's given me too much to absorb on the spot. It's hard to picture this man before me, clad in huraches, blowing on his tea, as a twenty-something wielding a Kalashnikov and driving the Russians out of Kabul. Quite unexpectedly, I hear myself ask whether I might take a look around Ismail's bedroom. I'm sure the feds confiscated everything of religious significance, but regardless, I feel like it's the closest I can get to being inside his headspace. Nadim doesn't seem surprised at all. You know where it is? I remember. Please, be my guest. He doesn't appear to have the stamina or willpower to rise. You knew him, after all. Maybe you'll find something those agents missed. I have no illusions of this being the case, but I pass through the living room. Javaria is now mysteriously absent, and climb the staircase. This leads to a corridor. Ismail's door is the second on the left. The first thing I notice is that his bed is still unmade. Javaria, after discovering the letter, had not found it in herself to return and finish stripping the sheets. A clean rectangle on his desk's dusty surface adverts where his laptop once sat. The walls are nearly bare, except for a poster-sized conversion chart with the Islamic and Julian calendars superimposed over each other. Upon his dresser is a plastic display stand, the kind you find in the front windows of bookstores. The stand is empty, but I can guess which book it once contained. Rolled up in the corner is his prayer mat. At first, I'm surprised to see it left behind, though I guess he deemed it too large to facilitate discreet traveling. I pop open the disc tray on his stereo. The CD's label is printed in Arabic. There is one family photograph to be found. No sports or music memorabilia. 
It's about as cold as a military barracks. Anyone snooping through here without context might presume him to be a failed but fastidious 40-something banker living with his parents. I draw back the curtains to look out at Ismail's former view, what he might have seen as he ruminated over the upheaval he was about to commit. A maple tree towers within the confines of the picket fence. I can stare directly into its branches, watching a squirrel launch itself onto a distant power line. Beyond that, another house with the cross street visible to the east. Looking down, my eyes land on Khadijah. There she lay, sunning herself, book in hand, wearing a pair of small denim shorts and a bikini top. What I would like to do is drag the whole of the hawkish media back there and say, See? Does this look like a draconian, oppressive, Wahhabist patriarchy to you? She hasn't been stoned, has she, for not being wrapped head to toe in a burqa? Admire, if you please, the supple, exposed flesh. Admire the carefree way she drapes her hair over her right breast. And that perfect navel, like an apostrophe, proclaiming full ownership of the self. Admire the legs. Can't be bothered to describe the legs. If you don't see for yourself what's so remarkable about them, then frankly, you haven't got a journalistic eye and should retire immediately. In a moment of weakness, I envision stripping off my uniform, opening the window, taking a flying leap off the sill, and plunging straight into her. At the sound of a floorboard creaking in the hall, I throw the curtain closed and strike a senseless pose with my hands in my pockets, gazing around the room like Columbo. I pretend to inspect the lone photograph. It is of Nadim, Javaria, and an elderly bearded man whom I presume to be the grandfather. Javaria is flanked on either side by the two men. Standing before her is a version of Ismail from before I knew him. He grips his father's hand. Balanced in her mother's arms, glancing askew, is a young Khadijah. They stand in a sea of teeming bodies. Everyone is clad in the same featureless white garments. Behind them rises a strange cubicle structure, immense, made of clean black granite, ornamented with gold motifs of dizzying complexity. Above the photograph hangs a shadow box, the sort bug collectors use to display their exotic moths and millipedes. Only this one contains a single vial of water not much bigger than a mini-bar bottle of Dewar's. That was taken at the 2003 Hajj, Javaria says behind me. I turn, acting half-startled. We wanted to go as a family while Nadim's father was still in good health, but I wish we had waited another year or two. Khadijah can just barely remember it. She stands in the doorway, a morose, conservative, but not unbeautiful corollary to her daughter. I notice she does not cross the threshold, either because it would be improper for us to be alone in a room together, or for less dogmatic reasons. Mickey, you've been such a good friend to us over the years. Nadim and I were hoping, if you don't have plans, that you would care to join us for supper tonight. I'm more thrown off guard than if she'd proposed we lie down in her son's unmade bed for a quickie. Such a good friend. We've barely spoken in the last four years. Then again, maybe this is more a case of banding together, an instinct to salvage what few allies they have left. After all, we now both fall in the category of local pariahs. By that I mean we are both, the Mubaraks and I, Subjects of malign gossip for Judson Bottom. In a way, Ismail has supplanted me, the adulterous police officer, 
as everyone's favorite scandal and degenerate oddity. For that, I ought to be grateful. For that, I ought to at least accept his mother's invitation. But it's with much hesitancy and second-guessing that I reply, I'm off work at six.